the first lecture is painting the background uh, to the achievement of powered flight. It's called From Antiquity to the Era of the Rights, and it's being presented by Dr. John Ackroyd, um, who recently retired from the University of Manchester. John Ackroyd, like many of us, is not a professional historian. He's, a, he's one who's done other things in his life. He's been an aerodynamicist for most of his time, a university teacher, but he's become very interested in the history of the development of the science behind aeronautics. And uh, many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with uh, a major series of papers that he has published and actually is still publishing in the journal. I think he's up to part four now and part five is still to come on the UK's contributions to the development of aeronautics generally. Um, so without further ado, I'll invite John Ackroyd to present his paper. John. My job today is to try and cover something like 2,000 years of history in 35 minutes flat. So what I'm going to have to do is be brisk, to say the least, and I'm probably going to have to be more selective than I was in the written version of the paper as to what I cover. Also, what I'm doing today is covering really two parallel lines of development, the scientific understanding of flight and the practical path towards actually achieving it. And what I'm hoping to get round to be able to tell you at the end is by sheer, sheer serendipity, round about the time of the Wright brothers' early flights, these two paths started to come together. So that's what I'm aiming to do. Now, to start the ball rolling, you've got to imagine that I am an ancient Greek, uh, a student of Aristotle 300 years B.C., and I'm doing a very simple experiment. Now, you can all see in front of you here this great block of marble. All right? You, you can all see it, can't you? Yes, you know. I mean, you know, by Zeus, it's hard to push. Right? And as soon as I stop pushing it, it stops. Now, the principle I deduce from this is assuming this thing works. Everything that moves must be pushed. So if I pick up this spear and throw it into the audience, when it leaves my hand and continues to move, something must be pushing it, mustn't it? So what is it that's pushing it? Well, the only thing in material contact with it is the air. And as Aristotle explained, it was the air doing the pushing. So right at the arduous his beginning of the arduous history of dynamics, air enters the story to confuse rather than to clarify. Now, this, this continued let me say, this continued until the, until the era of Galileo. So you might say, really, I've written off the first thousand years of, of uh, scientific history. I don't have to talk about it. I do, actually, but just a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the other thing to notice, of course, is that we are an extremely long way away from the principle of inertia. Everything that moves must be pushed. Different thing. What I'm trying to get at, really, is that if nobody flew you know, until the right, shall we say, or Cayley, as I'll be explaining today, is hardly surprising because the principles were very far from understood and not just on the subject of aerodynamics. The other thing you've got to remember, of course, is this other thing that the, the Greeks came up with, the, the four elements, uh, earth, air, fire, and water. And these elements had their natural levels uh, to which things as Aristotle explained, either belonged or existed in 
for example, uh, the earth, for example, we are earthy creatures, that's where we go back to when we die, don't we, and things like that. Um, <clears throat> water, well, you know, fishy creatures live in that, they're watery creatures, aren't they? And the air, well, that's where the birds were. End of story. You didn't have to explain anything more than that. And in fact, the people who embroidered on these ideas, right up until the time of Galileo, were people who said, well, you know, why do birds have these very fluffy feathers? Well, they beat the wings like this to sort of move these fluffy feathers through the air and gather in more lightning air in the process. Or they swell their breasts when they're flying to do the same thing. Pierre Gassendi, who was... Uh, protege of, of Galileo's, took it even further and said, ah, oh, when, you, when you cut through a quill of a feather, you find that it's hollow, which, of course, it must be containing a volatile lightning vapor which makes a fly. There's only one person, in fact, that, well, two people, actually, and one of significance, who seemed to understand that it was nothing to do with all this, but it was something to do with the air's motion over the, the wing, and that course, was Leonardo. But since Leonardo has been done to death by Alan Yintob and so on, BBC One, and I've, I've got to be brief, I'm going to pass very quickly through the helicopter and the ornithopter designs and so on, and I'll flag him up simply. If you want to talk about him afterwards, we can talk about him. Now, this was the state of affairs, really, that went on until Galileo. And the only thing I'll mention about Galileo, Galileo Galilei is that he was the first person to suggest an inertia principle. Uh, never mind everything that moves must be pushed, he suggested that motion persists on its own. Unfortunately, his inertia principle was what I call a circular inertia principle because he said if you throw something from the top of a tower, uh, apart from the natural tendency for it to fall down, it will continue in a curved path parallel with the Earth's surface. So it's not a straight line inertia principle, it's a curved one. The guy who came up with the straight line inertia principle was René Descartes in his Principles of Philosophy, 1644. He also believed that all changes in motion occurred through collision. And because he'd adopted the straight line inertia principle, he realized that motion in a circle must require some action to do this. However, his attempts to analyze both collision and you know, motion in a circle were disastrous. His protege, one-time protege, Christian Huchens, was the one who produced a, a, a working uh, collision theory and also analyzed uh, motion in a circle, coming up with the idea that, well, although he could calculate the acceleration correctly, he came up with the idea that it was a centrifugal, center-fleeing force that was causing the motion. So all this, of course, was Newton's inheritance. And Newton did his own collision theory, collision experiments, uh, corrected Hurkins's centrifugal force idea introducing centripetal force, and through his collision experiments and theory, came up with the laws of motion. And uh, also on top of that, of course, universal gravitation. But uh, I will just put this up to flag up that if you want to ask me about why the laws of motion are not quite ours. We'll talk about that afterwards. Nonetheless, Newton's unerring instinct in dynamics led him to the result for resistance that it was proportional to the fluid density, the square of the flow speed, and also some characteristic area, S, of the body. But he conceived of fluids as two different mediums. One was a rare medium of disconnected particles that flowed along in straight lines until they hit a body. And Euler, uh, when he applied the idea to a flat place in 1745, came up with the famous or infamous sine squared incidence relation. I'll just flag that up as being important later, really. Uh, the other idea that Newton had was that for a continued medium, he called it, as water, hot oil, 
and quicksilver and applied this to flow out of a water vessel. And to do it, he used this dodge of what I call the ice cataract argument. In other words, to analyze the problem, he made these two chunks of shaded bits as if congealed to ice. And then he could analyze the flow in the funnel through here. Well, uh, he got the right answer by doing that for the efflux velocity with a bit of fiddling. But then he said, well, suppose you expose a disk or any other shape to this efflux down here. What would be the, the resistance force on that? And he conceived again of a, 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 an ice column sitting on top of this disk and uh, can, in the end considered that this must be a paraboloid of revolution and the weight of that must be pressing on the body, the disc or whatever it was and effectively what he came up with as the drag coefficient for any shape of body exposed to an efflux like this was one half. Well, of course, the rest of the world thought that was really rather nonsense and I'd again like to just make the point that Sometimes, just sometimes, the mistakes of great men can have very far-reaching consequences. In fact, Newton's use of the ice cataract argument dominated mathematical research in Europe for about a century after his death. The other thing he came up with was trying to explain why if you spin a cylinder in a bath of water, it creates a vortex. And although he got the solution wrong, uh, he introduced, first of all, that there must be a no-slipper on the surface here, otherwise you couldn't make the fluid move, and that the force communicated from one layer to another was proportional to the velocity gradient that existed, and also that he did it by splitting the fluid up into elementary rings, another first. I mean, we use this kind of split things up into elementary particles, write down the conditions of applying to it, from which we obtain a differential equation, which we then try and integrate. And this was precisely what Newton did. And this, as far as I can see, anyway, was the first time it happened. Also, in uh, 1672, he, in talking about refraction of light, he used as an analogy the idea that a, a a spinning tennis ball swerves because there must be a force acting sideways on it, a lift force. Now, Newton's various arguments, of course, as I said, produced a Ferrari in Europe. They thought he was mad, uh, particularly the ice cataract argument. And so this actually produced the field theory of fluid flow and it started off with young Daniel Bernoulli here, now in St. Petersburg, born in Basel, Switzerland, and also his irascible old dad, John Bernoulli, um, and more particularly by the friend of Daniel and the protege, the, the student of John Bernoulli, Leonhard Euler. And... Uh, what Euler did was really put fluid flow theory on a firm basis at long last. Uh, 1738, in his naval science, he came up with the modern concept of pressure, the equality of pressures at a point. Nobody else had conceived it in this way before. Between 1752 and 1766, he produced step by step, more generally, generally, generally as he went along, the general differential equations of continuity and momentum obtained by looking at a, an elementary chunk of fluid and applying to it what we would now recognize as Newton's second law, mass times acceleration equals force. Newton didn't say that. As I say, we can flag that up as a possible thing for discussion later. It was Euler, in fact, who realized what Newton had been doing in practice uh, and applied that principle. By integration, he then obtained Bernoulli's equation, wrote down a condition which we now recognize as that of irritationality, of vorticity, and showed that the equations of motion reduced to the equation we associate with 
Laplace later. Oh, my ex-students at Manchester will, of course, recognize this immediately. <laughs> that it's an or, uh, an, a partial differential equation and that it's linear, so its solutions are additive, and Euler wrote down the solutions for the source, the sink, and the vortex. And nobody took a great deal of notice. <laughs> Meanwhile, his contemporary, D'Alembert, here he is, smiling D'Alembert before his mistress revealed about what his, uh, her other activities had been. <laughs> That's another thing you can talk about in, in private later. <laughs> I, I used to keep my students at Manchester entertained by telling them about the sex lives of the great and famous. Anyway, there he is, D'Alembert, with a still smiling. And uh, he introduced... The, the idea of streamlines and stream functions and so on. I'll flag up, incidentally, this curious little bit at the nose here and the tail, if you want to talk about that later. That's interesting. But having done the calculation for what the resistance would be, came up with the result that it was equal to, not proportional to, now equal to a constant of proportionality times rho v squared s. But the constant of proportionality is precisely zero for an irritational inviscid fluid. D'Alembert's paradox, no drag. Something wrong with that. Well, of course, this just marked up the necessity of having experiments. And the whirling arm, of course, answered the need even before D'Alembert came up with it. Well, about the time D'Alembert came up with the result. 1749, two years earlier. Benjamin Robbins in London had demonstrated before the Royal Society the whirling arm, where this, this descending weight here pulls the string, which turns this thing here, which whirls the arm round with a sphere on it. And measuring the drag on the sphere, he came up with the result that Newton had got by califudging. CD equals a half. Tested other body shapes and so on. Found that, in fact, there drag coefficients didn't depend on, weren't all the same, weren't all the value of a half as Newton had supposed, but depended on the shape of the body, pyramids, the plates, and so on. He also did this simple experiment of a pendulum swinging, suspended on two twisted together strings, and because of the spinning of the bob, the bob started moving out sideways. In other words, he was confirming what Newton had observed about the spinning tennis ball, that because it spins, it moves laterally as well. Well, of course, the, the whirling arm became very popular after that. Uh, here's John Smeaton, his Ediston lighthouse that he was responsible for, and also his, his whirling arm. He had to pull it with this string to turn the shaft to whirl the arm, and he put model windmills on it uh, and measured the power output with this weight system here. He had a little uh, pendulum to measure time with it. And you notice the positioning of the main spar here, more or less at the quarter cord. He picked up Dutch practice, which had gradually evolved the whirling at uh, the, the windmill from main spars at mid-chord, gradually to one-third chord, then quarter-chord. The one place, quarter-chord point, again, my Manchester students will recognize immediately as the place to put it if you're just going to have a single main spar. Structurally advantageous. Another guy who used a whirling arm, 1798 in the end, was Samuel Vince at Cambridge. Cruciform arm like this, four models all the same, but he set these plates at alternating incidences to do the drag on plates at incidence. And, I mean, you know, put this in a water bath, and it looks very much like uh, Jules' paddle wheel experiment, doesn't it? Does, <laughs> the flow must have been dreadful. The point is, though, of course, that from this, Vince could get no agreement with either the sine-squared incidence relation from Newton's theory or anything else either. Now, that was the state of play when the aeroplane was invented. In fact, one year after Vince gave his Bakerian lecture before the Royal Society, Sir George Cayley came up with the idea for the aeroplane and in 1799 engraved the idea on the two sides of a silver disc now in the Science Museum in London. 
picture on the left there uh, shows a fixed wing and a separate propulsion system, albeit a paddle arrangement, and then steering with this cruciform tail. And this was the big breakthrough. Until that point, everybody had tried to, to fly flapping wings and had been unsuccessful. So, sorry, so Cayley introduced that. And on the other side of the disc, he's starting to think scientifically about the problem of flight. He's marked off the air resistance on a plate wing uh, as perpendicular to the plate, and then using the triangle of forces, he's decomposed it into the lift and drag components. Well, in 1804, he's uh, measuring the lift force on a plate using an adaptation of Robbins's whirling arm. What you've got is the usual whirling arm arrangement, but now we've got a horizontal hinge here so that this arm acts as a lever to measure the lift force on the plate. And he measured it at two speeds, and I've plotted the results out here as lift coefficient against angle of incidence, two speeds, reasonably good agreement with what used to be the old Royal Aeronautical Society's data unit, now ESDU, or was ESDU, and there's reasonably good agreement. So 1804, Cayley starts being the first person to measure lift. And then the same year, the end of that year, he produces the first glider, the first aeroplane to fly. There it is up at the top. And you can see that it's a sort of kite-like wing on a bamboo fuselage with this little wiggly bit here so you can set the tail, cruciform tail, at any instance you like. Uh, and he's arranged this lead weight here so as to produce a center of gravity at the wing mid-area. Now, again, this whole business of stability and control I can go into if you want to afterwards. But by 1808, with another glider, rather different planform wing, of course, he's come to the conclusion by taking moments that, in fact, the center of pressure of the wing is in the ratio of 3 to 7 in terms of area. In other words, it's a little bit after the quarter chord point again, Manchester graduates. Uh, uh, basic aerodynamic theory says, you know, this is where it's asymptoting to, quarter chord point. 1818, he produces a little glider similar to this one, in fact, but it's got dihedral on the wings, a rather more forward center of gravity, I suspect, and the downloaded tailplane. He draws attention to it in his letter. Now, that, in fact, is the usual outcome of stability and trim requirements on the modern airplane. The, the, the tailplane usually detracts slightly from the lift of the wing. And in 1800, Nine, in fact, and this is my deliberate, deliberate mistake, ladies and gentlemen, it should be 1809, not 1808. He measures the girth distribution of a trout, divides by three is a good enough approximation for pi, and then plots out this axisymmetric body which he claims will have the least resistance. And von Kármán in 1954 pointed out that it's almost identical with a modern low-drag aerofoil section. And in fact, in the triple paper, if you can't read it, I'll read it out. This, he refers to this. It has been found by experiment that the shape of the hinder part of the spindle is of as much importance as that of the front in diminishing resistance. This is arises from the partial vacuity created behind the obstructing body. If, if there be no solid to fill up this space, a deficiency of hydrostatic pressure exists within it and is, in, and, is in trans, and is transferred to the spindle. And it's such a dark nature that it's best investigated by experiment. Well, the point about that is that almost universally up until this point, everybody, 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 I think with one exception, as far as I can tell anyway, believed that it was the front of a body that generated resistance and it didn't matter damn what shape you made the back end. And in fact, the world had to wait until Prantl's boundary layer theory of 1904 to realize why this was so. But Cayley was flagging it up even then. The triple paper that he produced on aeronautics begins, ushers in the science of aeronautics, in fact. 
Lukas classic statement, putting it in a nutshell, the whole problem is confined within these limits to make a surface support a given weight by the application of power to the resistance of air. That, in a sense, in essence, is what it is. And in the paper, he covers those four subject areas which are fundamental to any reputable aeronautical curriculum. I keep on saying this for a very good reason, because I have a horrible feeling that that may not be the case much longer. It was not several years ago when it was okay to have degree courses in aeronautical engineering in this country, but sod doing aerodynamics, that's tricky. Why not send them on a course in law as an alternative? <laughs> so, Cayley covers aerodynamics, power requirements, structures, and stability and control. It's all there. All the basics are there in that paper. Now, after that, and well, 80, the 1818 glider, Cayley went off onto airships and various other activities. And we have to wait, in fact, until William Samuel Henson came up with his uh, aerial steam carriage. Here's the Royal Aeronautical Society's lovely old engraving that they have of this, an original. And this gives an idea of it in more detail. Follows Cayley's teaching, but as we'll see, Cayley was very wary indeed of this higher aspect ratio wing, despite the three spars and curved uh, ribs and oil silk covering and kink posts and bracing wire you know, and all the rest of it. He didn't like it. But um, in building a little steam-powered model at Chard, Somerset, Henson wasn't too successful. He had structural problems. Uh, he was assisted with the engine with his friend John Stringfellow. Here he is. Uh, and when Henson gave up, Stringfellow persisted and built a, a little monoplane, steam engine powered here, uh, running along a rail, suspended from a rail. Uh, this is a science museum model of it, so I, how accurate is that? I couldn't really say. But this interest and uh, in the aerial steam carriage resurrected Cayley's interest in the aeroplane. Here he is at the age of 70 criticizing the Henson design and, and saying in effect, well if you're going to do this kind of thing wouldn't it be better to have a shorter span and if you're going to do that why not go for a three-decker as he put it. So with this we get the invention of the triplane and also by implication the biplane. And in 17, 1849, sorry, he built what was called, what became called a boy carrier, a triplane, flapper propulsion, which as far as I know wasn't used, and a 10-year-old boy was, was glided down a bit of Brompton Dale in this, and then the thing was towed as a sort of kite glider. And in 1852, in Mechanics Magazine, he came up with this design for a glider, what he called a governable parachute. But the thing to notice about both of them is the duplicated tail unit. And Cayley, in 1852, in the paper about the governable parachute, explains why it's there. The bottom one is for steering. Might be easy to point here. The bottom one is for steering. The top one is fixed, or at least is slightly movable and is fixed in the negative incidence position, he stresses that, downloaded tail, so as to secure it against eddies of air and pitching. So it's a stability surface. So at last Cayley has understood that his aeroplane has to have a tail which is there for stability as well as steering and also in passing he mentioned and explained in fact why he could be used for retrimming for different flight speeds. So there's an awful lot, apart from roll control, in fact, which is missing in Cayley, an awful lot of the aeroplane is there. Now, Cayley's uh, work was then, after his death, taken on in France, largely. People like Alphonse Pinot, here he is with his little planophore, uh, rubber band-powered pusher-propeller, which also, you can just see it in the photograph, used Cayley's negative incidence tailplane. And 
They're trying to sort of justify this credence to its belief by calling it longitudinal dihedral, as if the argument, which wasn't correct anyway, for ordinary dihedral uh, could be carried over to explain the negative incidence tailplane as well. And also, of course, there was uh, Félix Dutemple, who uh, produced the hot flight down a ramp with this steam engine-powered monstrosity. So that's possibly the first powered hot flight takeoff. Now, while all this was going on, the science side of it was starting to bloom. And it was being done by uh, two men, basically, in Britain. Uh, William Thompson, later Lord Kelvin, introduced things like the method of images in potential flow. Uh, and also George Gabriel Stokes, uh, Stokes' stream function for axisymmetric flow. Uh, and then between them, they produced Stokes' theorem, which relinks the vorticity inside a circuit to the circulation around the edge of the circuit. Um, but more significantly, or as significantly, it was Stokes, in fact, who came up with what we use nowadays, the form that we use nowadays of the Navier-Stokes equations. The viscous effect story, of course, in a sense had started with Newton, had been dropped for a hundred years. Way back then, Cauchy introduces or introduces general stress tensors into the equations of Euler. Uh, Navier actually produced a form of the Navier-Stokes equations um, using a molecular model for the fluid. Poisson did the same sort of thing in 1831. Saint-Venant more or less followed or did what Stokes did later, two years later. And in between, Cauchy produced his decomposition theorem, which Stokes, in fact, also produced as well. To cut a long story short, 1851, Stokes applies the equations he's deduced to the very slow motion of a sphere and found that the drag was proportional to what we now call the viscosity coefficient mu. So at this point, he's overturned D'Alembert's drag paradox. He's got an explanation for drag, and it involves this thing called mu. He didn't know what it was. He thought it was something proportional to density, and we had to wait until 1860 and James Clark Maxwell's kinetic theory uh, to get a physical explanation of what this might be. And in fact, in 1866, when Maxwell started measuring it, he was calling it the coefficient of viscosity. Now, just to backtrack slightly to inviscid flow theory, again, my Manchester graduates will see this immediately. The sad thing is that probably the present generation won't have a clue what I was talking about. James Clark Maxwell uh, used, well, a doublet array between here and here to generate this solid shape, this oval, the Rankin oval, and the flow around it. Now, in fact, he'd done it far too complicatedly uh, because nowadays the way we teach it is just a source and a sink, oilless source and sink. And in fact, if you use an array, a uniform array of doublets, they all cancel each other out and just leave with you the thing at the beginning and the end. However, Rankin's method, of course, is a very early example of the method of distributed singularities. I won't say anything about the momentum flux arguments, but again, that's something that we use nowadays all the time. Now, also at this time, Hermann von Helmholtz had observed that a free jet moving through a quiescent fluid has well-defined boundaries, so he came up effectively with free streamline theory. Uh, vorticity sheets separating the moving fluid from the non-moving fluid. Kirchhoff applied this in 1869 to calculate the drag on a normal plate using effectively this model here of the free streamlines coming off the plate edges. Tried to do the angle plate, couldn't complete the solution. Lord Rayleigh did it in 1876 for the angle plate, and that's the picture there, you see. But the interesting thing is that comes, what comes out of it is the lift is proportional to the sine of the angle of incidence, not the sine squared. So this is the first time that the 
sine rather than sine squared is being flagged up. And also in Germany in 1852, Heinrich Magnus was doing this very simple experiment. It's a very simple experiment, a little centrifugal fan, hand-driven from here, squirting air onto this cylinder, which is being turned by this other handle. And he noticed the asymmetry in the flow, the sideways force became known as the Magnus effect through this. This little white patch here is a piece of paper which, depending on which side you put it, got sucked in or sucked out indicating to him that it was a pressure difference that was causing this. 1877, Lord Rayleigh does the analysis, uh, irritational motion, in, inserts onto a circular cylinder flow a vortex and finds that the lift force is proportional to the streaming velocity and what he called the velocity of the motion of circulation, which again my Manchester graduates would recognize immediately as virtually a statement of the Kutta-Zhukovsky theorem for this problem. Now, as to viscosity, a better idea of its crucial pervasive role came in Manchester from our first professor of engineering there, Osborne Reynolds, and his very simple experiment, which still exists, we demonstrate it periodically, of uh, a water tank, and water flows out through the tank, through this bell now, through this pipe, down into the drain, and you can look at the quality of the flow by letting dye squirt into the beginning of the bellmouth. And these are Reynolds's pictures of what happened. Now, at what would be, in fact, very low Reynolds number, you get completely smooth streaming motion. Higher Reynolds number, it suddenly bursts into an irregularity. And he took a spark sketch of it and saw these regular sort of eddy formations. When this happened, depended on this non-dimensional group that we now call Reynolds number. Uh, Sir William Thompson, as he then was, in 1887, said, let's call it turbulence. 1894, Reynolds has gone through analysis to produce the Reynolds stresses of turbulent flow. Uh, Arnold Sommerfeld, in 1910, said, why don't we call it the Reynolds number? And in this period, Lord Rayleigh produced a series of applications of dimensional analysis to suggest that, in fact, what we ought to be doing with Newton's resistance proportional to rho v squared s is also multiplied by a function of Reynolds number. And that's where, in a sense, the modern understanding and plotting results came from. Now, just to backtrack for the practical men, in 1866, as Lee Balthasar, I think, mentioned, the Royal Aeron or the Aeronautical Society was formed, and the first lecture was given by Francis Herbert Wenham, and in it he described these two simple gliders he'd built. That's a plan view and that's a front view, which are uh, multiplanes, but they didn't work too well because they didn't have tail units. And two years later, the Society was involved in the aeronautical exhibition at Crystal Palace, where, in fact, uh, Stringfellow reappeared with his triplane, here it is, buzzing along on a, beneath a wire. I think they tried to fly it afterwards, but it wasn't successful. Now, in Germany, Otto Lilienthal was doing his experiments. And with these wings of this platform, Zulu shield, effectively, and these shapes. In fact, all these top four shapes produce pretty well the same results. The bottom one with a thicker leading edge was rather better, significantly. He tested them both on a whirling arm, top picture, and also natural wind balances. And he was very wary of the whirling arm. He didn't believe the results too well. Uh, so that's why he went to the wind balance. But of course, if you're doing it in the natural wind, you need to measure the wind velocity. And for this, he used a plate anemometer. And uh, here's the wind blowing against the plate on a spring. So depending on the spring deflection, gives the force on the plate. 
And he said, well, it would be equal to kv squared s. And the value of k he could have measured himself, but for some strange reason he decided to use the value of k quoted by John Smeaton in 1759, which had been given to him by his friend Mr. Rouse of Harborough. And it was wrong. And it was, it was way wrong. And so poor old Lilienthal couldn't figure out, you know, why these two sets of results for the wind balance and the, the whirling arm didn't agree. Well, here you can actually go back through his calculations and get back to effectively his CL measurements for the whirling arm, three different cambers. These are the curves here. And then what I've done with this one, he only did it on the, 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 balance, the, the wind, natural wind balance for one twelfth camber. I've gone and re corrected his readings uh, by the factor, in fact, of the, what the correct K should be. And they do tend to agree rather better down this end here. But nonetheless, it was the, world, uh, the, the natural wind balance readings that, that Lilienthal promulgated throughout the aeronautical world, and it misled the Wrights and various other people. Nonetheless, on the basis of that, he built his gliders, all controlled by swinging the legs, as you can see here, hand glider. Lovely little slide coming up next of him gliding. And of course, the world saw that he was successful. They used to come in droves to watch him glide. This had an enormous effect on the history of aerodynamics, if I get time to tell you about it at the end. His protege to some extent in Britain was Percy Pilcher, who uh, built a series of fourth glider, in fact was the hawk shown here, which suffered structural failure and killed him in 1899. In the United States, and I think Dick Hallian's going to talk more about this, Octave Chanute and Augustus Moore Herring and various other people were involved in the glider trials at Lake Michigan in 1896. Uh, the one on the right here is, is the important one, introducing the Pratt Truss for, for, for uh, the rigging system, the first time it had been used. Uh, in fact, I think I've got, let's go back, I've got a, an overhead, which I think Dick's going to be showing as well, actually. And you can see the Pratt truss on it here, the cross-bracing wires, and also the greater movement of center of gravity here, so it could be made either, you know, well, more stable and more controllable by bigger body movements. That was the important thing. And also in terms of the terms of power flight, Clermont Arder in France produced what you call the god of the winds, or the AOL steam engine power, going to be controlled by differential changes to the plan form of a bat-like wing. This is a science museum model. Hopped off the ground, so it's supposed to be the first takeoff from level ground, but not a true flight. Um, and in Britain, the expatriate American, Aram Stevens Maxim, produced what he called his uh, lift test rig. Here it is. Wingspan of a Vulcan bomber, ladies and gentlemen. Propellers 17 feet in diameter, running along the center rails, and on outside those you can see those outer rails, the outriggers on the thing engaged from underneath, so it couldn't actually take off very far anyway. It was what he called a lift test rig, just to prove that it would do it. And uh, this overhead shows the fore and aft planes to try and achieve this by setting these at different incidences you could get a level takeoff. Third run the axle tree on the outriggers broke and it was wrecked. Built, rebuilt it, tried it again and then gave up in, in disgust. Now in uh, the United States of course, and I think Dick's going to be talking about this too, uh, Langley, which I'll just quickly whip through. The aerodrome number five catapulted off uh, launch on a, of a boat. Uh, the big version of it, the uh, great aerodrome being catapulted first time, and you can see the obvious problems of stu structural irrigidity, if that's the word, on the front wing there, and diving into the Potomac or Potomac, and of course the failure of the rear main spar on the second launch. Now, I will stop here. Uh, because now the rights come into play. 
If you want to flag up other things to discuss, I can talk about Manchester and people like that. But I will leave it to you. Am I, am I to take questions now, Frank? sweep through history it, uh, it was really fascinating and I think it's uh, very appropriate that it, uh, it, uh, it didn't just set out basic facts of what people did but it did deal with the thinking and the concepts of how these things evolved and that was uh, very useful indeed and uh, as an indication of the fundamentals of it all very valuable as a start to the conference. I must say it it made me rake around in my fast-failing memory uh, to think about D'Alembert's paradox and all those things that I, I used to pretend to know about once upon a time. Um, I think I can, as chairman of the historical group, I can assure the audience that there will not be a written examination at the end of this but uh, John, that was a, an excellent beginning. Uh, we have just a few minutes for questions now before we gallop off and have a cup of coffee. So if anybody... Yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, but I'm Michel Harvey, and I'm a fellow of the Society. I retired from SNECMA. I would like to mention, uh, I'm sure you know him, is Louis Mouillard whose work inspired Octave Chanut. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, John Allen. Was I correct in the say that you said that D'Alembert was the first de person to describe streamlines? And w would you make a brief comment on the contribution of Green, the Nottinghamshire Miller, who went to Cambridge at the age of 40, uh, and started doing his very complicated uh, uh, relationships of fluid flow, which you nicely showed by the nebula squared phi, which is much, much simpler. Yeah. Well, in brief, the two, two things here. Um, D'Alembert, as far as I understand it, was the first person to actually use or talk about streamlines. Now, in fact, Euler had done it a few years before by talking about fillets, I think. Uh, in his Naval Science, 1745. D'Alembert mentioned it in 1749 in his essay that was finally met, published in 1752. Now, D'Alembert also introduced the idea of the stream function as a measure, measure of the mass flux going along, or volume flux going along these streamlines. If you wanted to ask what that curious little triangle was at the beginning, I don't know if I can put it up, he was using there um, von Leibniz's continuity principle, which has nothing to do with continuity of flow. It's the idea that you cannot have sudden changes in direction of motion. And so at the nose of a body, D'Alembert thought that the flow couldn't actually well, stop and turn through 90 degrees and go around. He thought that there would be this stagnant air of a cost nose of stagnant fluid at the beginning and at the back to sort this out. He didn't realize that, of course, von Leibniz's continuity principle didn't apply when the fluid is actually brought to rest. It can go through a 90 degree turn then. Green, yes. Now, somebody has mentioned green already, actually, in a review they did. Uh, my book. Um, and yeah, I mean, green should be there, perhaps, arguably, but it's a volume integral, you see, and so far with things like Stokes and Stokes theorem and so forth, aerofoil theory were more interested, or they were, in two-dimensional flows, in other words, area integrals, not volume integrals. So when I was a young lad and a student, everybody was getting into Green's theorem in its various forms and applying it left, right and centre to three-dimensional flow and things like this and saying Green's theorem is the way to go and all this. And I thought, you know, bloody hell, I mean, what, do, what, what is Green? <laughs> I have to read this up. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd suggest that although it was there, it came into use rather later. At the time people used things like Stokes' theorem, in a sense, which is two-dimensional, really. hope that sort of 
Time for one more, and then we'll need to go and have some refreshment. Is there anything else? We have... Ah, yes, yes. Um, my name's uh, Bryn Bird. I'm a um, civil engineer and was therefore interested by your reference to Smeaton and why his coefficient was, was so wrong, uh, or the coefficient that took his name. Um, I believe he, he didn't actually calculate it himself. No. Um, I think it is possibly just because he's a civil engineer and wanted to err on the safe side when it came to estimating <laughs> loads. You could well be right. Uh, no pun intended on right, incidentally. No, um, yeah, it was, as he said in his 1759 paper in the Royal Society, that he'd got the results, he tabulated them, in fact, from his friend Mr. Rouse of Harborough, whom the world has never heard of since. Um, and from it you can calculate this K, you see. Now, I mean, Smeaton wasn't saying it was right. He was just saying that somebody had done it and he knew about it and he was just telling people. But, of course, ever after, or virtually ever after, people referred to it as Smeaton's coefficient. Unfortunately, of course, like a lot of whirling arm experiments, they're not very, very accurate and, and Rouse's come Smeaton's coefficient is, as the Wrights found out, and Lilienthal didn't, was a disaster. And it was this question of what's the value of K that started the rights off, to an extent anyway, in actually building their own little wind tunnel replica of which you can see outside, and doing their own aerodynamic experiments in that tunnel because they'd begun to realize how inaccurate Lilienthal's experiments were. And Lilienthal's problem was Smeaton's coefficient, or so-called. Does that sort of tie it up? Thank you very much. I think there might be one or two other comments floating about as potentials, but uh, it is time to go and have some coffee. Um, anybody who would like to pin John Aykroyd to the wall uh, with a question or two uh, perhaps could do that over coffee or indeed at lunchtime. Thank you very much indeed, John, for starting us off. I, I, I should emphasize that uh, John's paper, of course, uh, says all these things in greater depth and detail and will be a fascinating read for all of us, I'm sure. Put in a one last plug. Uh, put in a last plug. The, the, the references that you'll find in the back of my paper are very scarce short. There are only eight of them. What I'm doing is referring really in the text to the list of references you will find in the first two references listed, my two early papers, uh, where you'll find about 400 references to all this. All these people are mentioned. So if you want to look, look in the Aero Journal.